Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com. This is Antiwar News for Friday, June 23rd, 2023. All right, the first story at the top of Antiwar.com today, the Ukrainian counteroffensive is not meeting U.S. expectations. So Western officials told CNN that Ukraine's bloody counteroffensive is not meeting expectations on any front as Ukrainian forces are struggling to break through Russia's defenses. The report said that according to Western assessments, Russia's lines of defense have been well fortified and Russian forces have been able to bog down Ukrainian armored vehicles with missile strikes and minefields. One official said that Ukraine's forces were vulnerable to Russia's minefields and described the Russian defenses as competent. The officials stressed that the counteroffensive was still in its early stages and said they remained optimistic that Ukraine could eventually regain some territory. So also on Thursday, Bloomberg reported that Ukrainian officials uh, said progress in the counteroffensive has halted. Ukraine's Prime Minister, uh, Denis Shmyhal, said that the assault, quote, is not an easy walk. This is not a Hollywood movie, end quote. So he's echoing comments uh, from Zelensky the day earlier. On Wednesday, Zelensky acknowledged that the counteroffensive is going slower than desired, but he vowed that Ukrainian forces would fight on, and he still said that, you know, we're not negotiating with Russia until all Russian troops are out of there. So according to Discord leaks and media reports, you know, we know that the U.S. doubted that Ukraine could regain much territory in this counteroffensive, but they pushed for this thing anyway. And, you know, this is a NATO funded, NATO trained, NATO equipped army. Uh, and the Biden administration has, you know, I always, I've been mentioning this a lot since Blinken made that speech earlier this month, but I think it's really important how they have just flat out rejected the idea of a ceasefire, rejected the idea of a pause in fighting. They've rejected peace. Um, so, you know, that's where they stand on this. All right. The next article here, Ukraine strike damages bridge connecting Crimea to Kherson. So Russian officials said Thursday that a bridge in northern Crimea that connects to Russian controlled areas of Ukraine's Kherson Oblast was damaged by a Ukrainian missile strike. No casualties were reported in the strike, and Vladimir Saldo, the Russian-installed acting governor of Kherson, said that the damage to the bridge should be repaired within a few days. Saldo also said that the damage will inconvenience local civilians but would not impact Russia's war effort. So he said that he suspected Ukraine used British-provided storm shadow cruise missiles in the strike, although Russia's investigative committee later said that missile fragments with French markings were found. At this point, the Russian authorities have not identified the missiles and just said that four were used. So it was hit by four missiles, blew a hole in the bridge, um, and they, they're saying they should repair the damage in a few days. And the attack on the bridge came just a couple days after Russia's defense minister, Sergei Shoigu, said that the Russian military had information that Ukraine was plotting strikes in Crimea using the Storm Shadow missiles or U.S.-provided HIMARS rocket systems. 
Shoigu warned that Russia could respond to such strikes by targeting decision-making centers in Ukraine. And, you know, we know this is always a big risk of escalation, Ukraine hitting Crimea, you know, especially Ukraine hitting Crimea with Western-provided weapons. That's, uh, you know, very provocative to Russia. Crimea is a major red line for uh, Putin. All right, the next one here, Sullivan and Newland to attend a Ukraine-organized meeting in Denmark. So National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan will travel to Denmark this weekend for a meeting organized by Ukraine that is expected to be attended by officials from several countries that have remained neutral on the war, including India, China, South Africa, and Brazil. So Ukraine requested this meeting with non-aligned countries, and Sullivan is expected to push them to increase their support for Kiev. The meeting has not been publicly announced. It's only been reported on. uh, It was first reported by Financial Times on Wednesday, and then a few other media outlets uh, reported on it on Thursday. But we haven't seen, you know, an official announcement on this meeting. It's going to be kind of low key, I guess, you know, they're telling the media about it. So Victoria Nuland is also going to attend the meeting. She's the U.S. Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs. Uh, But the guest list has not been finalized, and it could change before the meeting, and that applies to the countries that might attend. So the officials at the meeting are expected to discuss peace proposals, and the Western side will likely push for the neutral countries to come around to Kiev's demands for an end to the war, which include a full Russian withdrawal before any negotiations can happen. So these non-aligned countries, you know, China, uh, South Africa, and Brazil, they've been pushing for a ceasefire. They've been putting out peace proposals, and that puts them at odds with the U.S. As I said, you know, the Biden administration has come out against ceasefires, against a pause in fighting. And, you know, not only that, they've actually, you know, in that speech that Blinken gave, he disparaged other countries for calling for peace. You know, explicitly in this, he said some countries will call for a ceasefire. And on the surface, it sounds good because who doesn't want to stop the killing? Uh, but he's saying that a ceasefire, you know, freeze would reward the Russian aggressor. That's, you know, the Biden administration's line. Um, so, you know, they don't want the, the fighting to stop. They don't want the killing to stop. They've made that very clear. All right, the next one here, China lodges a complaint over Biden's rhetoric. So the Chinese government summoned the U.S. ambassador in Beijing to lodge a formal complaint over President Biden calling the Chinese president a dictator. So U.S. officials said that a diplomatic note was uh, delivered to U.S. Ambassador Nicholas Burns just hours after Secretary of State Antony Blinken departed Beijing. Over in the United States, the Chinese embassy in Washington said that it made serious representations and strong protests to U.S. officials over Biden's comments. The Chinese embassy said that Biden's disparaging remarks were erroneous, absurd, and irresponsible, and they called it an open political provocation. So now Biden on Thursday defended his rhetoric. And he downplayed the potential consequences, saying that his language when speaking about China, quote, is just not something I'm going to change very much, end quote. So, I mean, it just goes to show uh, the lack of competent diplomacy in this administration from Biden. You know, right after Blinken goes to China, he says that. And now he's saying, ah, it doesn't matter. Don't worry about it. I'm not going to change anything. I'm not going to think about it. 
Um, he claimed that he does not believe his comments will have any real consequences, but the diplomatic spat risks reversing the little progress that Blinken made in China. Uh, you know, while he was over there, he met with high level officials, including the foreign minister, including Wang Yi, who is, you know, the foreign policy advisor for Xi. And he met with the president Xi. And the two sides agreed, you know, we're going to keep talking. We're going to maintain dialogue. That was kind of the message that Blinken, uh, Blinken brought to Beijing was let's keep talking. But no breakthroughs were made as the Biden administration is not changing course on major issues of concern for China, such as increasing U.S. support for Taiwan. So Biden said that Blinken had a great trip and that he expects to be meeting with Xi again soon. Biden made these comments while he was holding a joint press conference with Indian President, uh, sorry, Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi, who is in Washington on an official state visit as the U.S. is boosting ties with India as part of its strategy against China in the region. So big uh, to do at the White House with Modi being there on Thursday. We'll get a little more into that uh, in a later story on the page here. But the next one here is very disappointing. Matt Gates wants authorization to take out Chinese assets in Cuba. So Representative Matt Gates, Republican from Florida, on Thursday, he told the House Armed Services Committee that he wants to give President Biden the authority to intervene militarily in Cuba to take out Chinese assets that are allegedly on the island. So Gates said, quote, I support an authorization for use of military force to take out the Chinese assets in Cuba, end quote. He wanted to add uh, this authorization for military force as an amendment to the 2024 National Defense Authorization Act, the NDAA, but he had to withdraw it for procedural reasons. But he was saying, you know, he put it forward at this hearing. He said, quote, to my hawk friends on the committee who think I'm too much of a dove, this amendment is an authorization to use military force given to President Biden to take out the Chinese assets in Cuba, end quote. And, you know, this comes after the Wall Street Journal reported that Beijing and Havana are negotiating to establish a joint military training facility in Cuba. And that report cited, you know, unnamed U.S. officials who based their claim on what they called convincing but fragmentary intelligence. So who knows if it's uh, even true. U.S. officials also recently claimed that China had has had spying capabilities on Cuba since at least 2019. Beijing has denied this. So Gates, you know, in this hearing, he said because he's uh, introduced legislation to pull out of Syria and Somalia. He's been kind of leading that. So he's saying, you know, oh, usually I'm trying to end wars. And actually, I think, you know, if we give Biden this authorization, it will prevent war. It'll deter China from, you know, gaining a foothold in Cuba. But I mean, it's just it's just ridiculous because we know that, you know, if these claims about China are true, um, this is a response to the U.S. building up militarily near China, obviously, particularly in Taiwan, which is about as far from mainland China as Cuba is from Florida. So, you know, to prevent if, if this is happening, you know, the, the way to prevent it uh, isn't threatening military action. It's, you know, diplomacy with China. There's a lot of things the U.S. could do to back down. 
in Taiwan. Uh, and, and another thing is they could lift sanctions on Cuba. Talk to like earnestly talk with Cuba. There's no reason for that embargo to still be imposed. It's been imposed since 1962. Um, you know, it's just a totally failed policy. It's just hurt the ordinary people there. The government hasn't changed. You know, lift the sanctions and just start trading with Cuba. Give them a reason not to, you know, host the Chinese spy bases there and and back down in Taiwan. It's very simple. Um, and you would think somebody that really wants to prevent war, really wants to end wars, would be able to see that. It's very obvious. So this is disappointing to see him do this, but it's not really a surprise. I mean, I knew he was a China hawk. You know, he's touting the Monroe Doctrine. I've heard him say those things before, but it's just this is just so over the top. You know, again, just based on these these reports. Um, so yeah, you know, not I, I've I haven't been surprised by a lot of the rhetoric from Congress, but it's just disappointing to see Gates kind of go with this over the top thing here about this China Cuba stuff. Uh, all right. The next one here, U.S. Coast Guard cutter transits the Taiwan Strait. So a U.S. Coast Guard cutter made a rare solo transit through the Taiwan Strait on June 20th, which came a day after Blinken concluded his two-day visit to Beijing. So the U.S. frequently sends ships through the Taiwan Strait, but U.S. Navy warships typically make the transits. It's usually the U.S. Navy doing it. Now, U.S. Coast Guard cutters have sailed through the Taiwan Strait in recent years, but they're usually accompanied by a Navy ship. They usually don't just do it on their own. The U.S. Navy's 7th Fleet announced the transit on Thursday, describing it as routine, of course, as they do. But the maneuver comes amid heightened tensions between the U.S. and China, and Beijing has become increasingly fed up with U.S. military activity in the region. Chinese officials have condemned U.S. transits of the Taiwan Strait as provocations. The Chinese Coast Guard described the U.S. transit as public hype and said that its vessels tailed the cutter all the way through the strait. So it's interesting, according to Japan Times, this incident was the first known time that the Chinese Coast Guard responded to a foreign vessel in the Taiwan Strait uh, rather than the Chinese military. Uh, which is interesting. Uh, so they sent their Coast Guard after our Coast Guard near China's coast. It's very, th- this is one of those things that just really shows, you know, the difference between what the U.S. is doing, you know, near China and what China is doing near the U.S. I mean, the U.S. Coast Guard near China's coast, you know, it's just ridiculous. Um, so to be surprised if they are doing things in Cuba, and I think if they actually are doing stuff in Cuba, it's kind of to, get leverage over the U.S. I think that would be the purpose, you know. Um, so the Chinese Coast Guard, you know, said that they followed this this uh, U.S. cutter and they vowed to safeguard national sovereignty uh, in the area. So the U.S. Coast Guard has vowed to increase its presence near China's coast and is expected to soon start joint patrols with the Philippines in the South China Sea, which would potentially put the U.S. vessels in confrontation with the Chinese Coast Guard. Um, So that's definitely uh, concerning. I know part of the Papua New Guinea deal, so the U.S. military is going to get bases there, and the U.S. Coast Guard is also going to get access to their uh, exclusive economic zone, which I believe is 200 nautical miles from a country's coast. So, you know, guarding coasts all around the world, (laughs) even coasts that that don't want to be guarded. All right, uh, the next one here, U.S. commander reports very professional interactions with Cuba. Sorry, with China. 
So the commanding officer of the aircraft carrier USS Nimitz said that Chinese vessels and planes he encountered during a seventh, seven-month deployment in the Western Pacific were very polite and very professional. So this is interesting. This is Captain Craig Sicola. He told reporters that he expected interactions to be more tense due to the current state of U.S.-China relations. But he said, quote, I would say that probably some of the most professional interactions I've had in my 29 years in the Navy are with them, end quote. And he's referring to the Chinese military. He said that the Chinese military reached out and that their scripts are very professional, just like they've arranged. The USS Nimitz is now on its way back home to the U.S., where it is based in uh, Washington, Washington State. So what's interesting here is that, you know, we've seen this rhetoric from, you know, higher up in the military, uh, higher up in the U.S. government, that China has been, you know, unprofessional and increasingly aggressive uh, toward these U.S. ships and planes that are sailing near the coast. So I just thought this was interesting that he said this. And while the Nimitz was over there, its strike group participated in several military exercises while in the Western Pacific, including uh, with the Japanese and South Korean militaries. And the carrier also spent a lot of time in the South China Sea. And that's something that's become more common in recent years is more U.S. aircraft carriers in the South China Sea and in areas, you know, East China Sea around the Philippines. I know according to the South China Sea Probing Initiative, which is a Beijing-based think tank that tracks U.S. military activity in the region, in 2021, uh, compared to 2020, the U.S. Uh, aircraft carriers entered the South China Sea twice as much as, as the year before. And then in 2022, it dropped a little bit the amount of time that they entered the South China Sea, but they said that they spent more time there as opposed to sailing around for five days. You know, it was more common that they would spend 10 days there. So when it comes to Navy sea days, you know, in the waters that could have increased in 2022. But anyway, it's just one way that the U.S. has been increasing its military activity there. And his comments come after the U.S. military accused China of unsafe and unprofessional maneuvers over two recent incidents. There was the encounter between U.S. and Chinese planes over the South China Sea and then the one, uh, you know, in the Taiwan Strait when the, they accused the Chinese ship of making an unsafe maneuver by passing 150 yards in front of a U.S. naval ship. And that was definitely, you know, on purpose by the Chinese. You know, again, 150 yards is not that there's a lot of room to maneuver there. <laughs> but the Chinese military, you know, defended their actions, saying that the U.S. warships were in the region for the sake of provocation. All right. The... Next one here, NATO's Article 5 does not override Congress war powers. So on Thursday, a group of Republicans introduced a bill in the House and Senate that would reaffirm NATO's Article 5, that NATO's Article 5 does not override congressional war, war powers. The effort was led by Senator Rand Paul and Representative Chip Roy and Warren Davidson in the House. So Paul wrote in Responsible Statecraft announcing the legislation, quote, I introduced a resolution reasserting that Article 5 of the NATO Treaty does not supersede Congress's responsibility to declare war or authorize military force before engaging in hostilities, end quote. So NATO's Article 5 outlines mutual defense commitments of the 31-member alliance, but does not automatically mean that the U.S. must intervene militarily if a NATO ally comes under attack. 
So this is interesting. And I think this is a good point uh, to make. And because I think a lot of people do, you know, I used to think that it was automatic, um, but it's not true. So Article 5 states, um, I'll just read some of Article 5 here. It's a little wonky the, the, with the, way, the way the language is, but uh, Article 5 reads, quote, the parties agree that an armed attack against one or more of them shall be considered an armed attack against them all. And consequently, they agree that if such an armed attack occurs, each of them in exercise of the right of individual or self or collective self-defense will assist the party or parties so attacked by taking forth with individually and in concert with other parties such action as it deems necessary, including the use of armed force. So Paul, so to kind of summarize that uh, the way Rand Paul put it, you know, it, it, it's, it says that NATO members are required to assist each other in the event of an attack, but military action is not mandated. Um, and Paul also pointed out that Article 11 of the NATO treaty states that the provisions of the treaty are to be carried out in accordance which, with each country's respective constitutional processes. So the legislation Paul introduced would express that Article 5 does not supersede the constitutional requirement that Congress declare war or authorize the use of military force prior to the United States engaging in hostilities. So the bill is basically reaffirming that, say, Poland gets attacked, uh, you know, Congress still has to de declare war for the U.S. to intervene. But, you know, we know that they abuse their war power. You know, the executive branch abuses this stuff all the time. I mean, they bomb Iraq and Syria and they cite the constitution, you know, saying it's self-defense. It's completely ridiculous. And there's enough warmongers in, in Congress that, you know, I don't think anybody's going to be fighting the president on this besides, you know, a small group uh, like this that introduced this bill, unfortunately. Um, so the bill was co-sponsored in the Senate by Mike Braun, uh, Mike Lee, Cynthia Lummis, and Josh Hawley. So Josh Hawley was the only senator to vote against Sweden and Finland joining NATO. But he did it because he's a China hawk, uh, explaining his reasoning for the vote. He said that he wants the U.S. to focus on building alliances in the Asia Pacific, uh, you know, instead of Eastern Europe. Uh, Rand Paul voted present on admitting Sweden and Finland. I don't get why he didn't just vote against it. I don't know what the point of that was. But so anyway, uh, you know, it's good to see. I think it's this is a good way to remind people that this is true, uh, that, you know, it's not an automatic war guarantee. Um, but you know, with the way Congress is these days, you know, I think it basically is. Uh, all right. So the last one here, Biden hosts Modi amid flurry of U S India deals. So this is from Straits times, which is a, uh, Singapore, um, news outlet. So President Joe Biden hailed a new era in the U.S.-India relationship after rolling out the White House red carpet for Indian President, sorry, Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi on Thursday, touting deals on defense and commerce aimed at countering China's global influence. The partnership is stronger, closer, and more dynamic than at any time in history, Biden told reporters at a joint press conference with Modi, and the economic relationship is booming with trade more than doubling over the past decade. Modi touted a new chapter in the country's strategic partnership after the two leaders emerged from the Oval Office talks, where the country's differences on Russia and human rights were on the table. Washington wants India to be a strategic counterweight to China and sees 
it as a critical partnership, although some analysts and former officials question India's willingness to stand up collectively to Beijing over issues such as Taiwan. Washington has also been frustrated by India's close ties with Russia amid Moscow's war in Ukraine. So I know this is a, a part, and what's interesting is that India now is the most populous country in the world. They just surpassed China. So the U.S. really, you know, is hoping to use them against China. And, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if in 30 years or so, India is the new enemy. You know, that's the way things go. But, you know, after the weekend, I'll probably have a story and on kind of some of the specific military agreements, military deals that they agreed on while Modi was in the U.S. I know they're working on kind of increasing collaboration between their uh, arms industries, that's a big part of it. The U.S. wants to sell India a lot more weapons so they don't buy as much stuff from Russia. Uh, but one thing I think a lot of people have overlooked was the deal back in 2020 that the U.S. and India signed allows the U.S. to share satellite data and more intelligence with India. And that's so India can can you know surveil Chinese troops on the disputed border in the Himalayas. Um, and that could all, you know, say a war breaks out there that could be used for targeting data for drone strikes and missile strikes. So that's a pretty big escalation of the military relationship uh, that happened in recent years. And I think they're going to try to build on that, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, it's a big one. And, uh, you know, I think we're going to see a lot of deals here between the U.S. and India. Um, but it's also not clear how, how much India wants to go along uh, against China. You know, they have their issues with them, but they also have a lot of trade with them and stuff. Um, and they want to keep their relationship with Russia. They've been buying a ton of Russian oil. So we'll see. Um, but that is it for the news for today. Go check out our viewpoints. U.S. intervention leaves rift that takes years to heal. That's from Brian Berlitic over at the Ron Paul Institute. One from Judge Knapp. No warrant. No problem. One from Joseph Solis Mullen. In search of a new abroad U.S. foreign policy in the late 19th century. That's at the Libertarian Institute and one from John Hoffman. The U.S. will not gain from Israel-Saudi normalization. That's over at the Hill. And one from David Sachs at the Federalist. Ukraine's failing counteroffensive in the peace that could have been. Uh, but that's everything for the week. Um, I hope everybody has a good weekend. You can always support us at antiwar.com slash donate. Uh, share the show around. Like and subscribe on YouTube or odyssey rumble wherever you like to watch things if you listen to the podcast you could leave reviews and just share the show with people up uh, that's it i'll be back after the weekend thanks for listening